to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Ian Ruspin, who is an estate taxation specialist and managing director of BNR Partners based in Melbourne which has specialised in the taxation of deceased estates for nearly 20 years. BNR provides outsourced estate taxation processing and technical advice to both legal practices and listed trustee companies across Australia, and more recently, direct appointment from the Supreme Court. BNR has one of the only dedicated teams of accountants in the country that specialise in this niche and often complex area of taxation, which frequently involves cross-border estate issues. In October 2019, BNR was named as the Global Mid-Sized Accounting Team of the Year by the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners in London. Ian is highly regarded nationally on estate taxation matters as a published author and as a frequent presenter at both legal and accounting conferences and events across the country. Ian also regularly provides in-house training sessions for both legal firms and trustee companies and consults with the professional bodies, the regulators, and the private sector on estate taxation issues. Ian is a Fellow of CPA Australia, a Chartered Tax Advisor of the Tax Institute, a Registered Practitioner of the Society of Trusts and Estate Practitioners, a Graduate Member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and the former Chair of CPA Australia's National Public Practice Advisory Committee, also known as PPAC. Ian, welcome to TaxIAC. Thanks, Robin. A lot of mouthful there. Great to be here. I appreciate the invite. You're very welcome. That's a, a healthy CV. And firstly, congratulations on your international award, which you uh, received recently in London. Thank you very much. Big a, uh, very much so. And a real result of the team that I work with. It's an, only a team that can make these things come together. So, Of course. Thank you. Now, you love talking about dead people. I have a lot of dead people as clients. You do. So. <laughs> you do. You've made a career of it. So... I'm going to start with a quote that uh, many people will probably be familiar with at least part of it. It comes from Benjamin Franklin, 1789, in a letter he wrote to John Baptist Leroy. He said, and this is in the context of, of course, the American uh, War of Independence and, yeah, of um, yeah. and setting up uh, independence from the UK. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. 100% right. Aren't we familiar with that? <laughs> very, very relevant and very still, uh, yeah, still very relevant topic, actually, and, and um, quite, it's often used in seminars I presented across the country, so it's beautiful. All right, so let's combine the two today. We're going to talk about a range of estate matters and, of course, its interaction with tax law. Um, general thoughts on where we're headed. What have you seen in terms of trends over the years? And, and if you look back 20 years ago and, and maybe ahead to 20 years from now, what's changing? <laughs> I think what's changing is awareness. Um, we're in a society at the moment where um, we have an ageing population. Um, by 2050, 24% um, of our society will be over the age of 65, a very high number. Um, previously, you know, estates have been probably smaller than they've ever been as they are at the moment. Uh, currently, we've got the intergenerational wealth transfer occurring, baby boom is going through, a lot of excitement, a lot of international aspects. So. Um, just on 49% of Australians are either first or second generation migrants in Australia. And if you start bringing those numbers together, all of a sudden you start to bring all these international conduits and assets and inheritances and beneficiaries into the mix as well. So, Which would go both ways because they could be inheriting assets from overseas, 100%. from parents who have died overseas, but equally there could be wealth in Australia that is being left to people overseas. Absolutely right. And then you interplay that with where the location of the executor is. And so all these sort of issues just create this great big minefield. Um, and so, look, I'm, I'm seeing uh, the area of tax um, around estates is something that probably historically hasn't been a high attention. We're now seeing it's a much higher attention with regulators. The ATO now have staff in this area. Commissioners starting to release a number of products in this area as well in that sort of space. And certainly the, the wealth, you know, you go back probably five years ago, only about 4% of tax revenue in Australia was collected from deceased estates and testamentary trusts, but that's escalating, as is the regulators' attention on that because our other revenue streams are drying up. Um, because people aren't working. And a full-time employee now is only a part-time employee. And we've got an ageing society. So definitely a growth area. 
Issues for practitioners, has this now moved into a specialist field? Can a general practitioner handle a typical deceased estate or has it just got too specialised? Oh, look, Robin, again, I, I'm sort of a, a guy that believes in um, putting my hand up when I'm out of my depth. Um, so things around small business CGT concessions, yes, I've studied them, I've, I've worked with them, I put my hand up, I bring somebody in. Things around a GST, particularly around prime deduction, some of the complexities around those, I'll bring experts in. And I think this is one of those areas where you can't be a generalist over everything. I work in this space, I have for about 20 years, and there wouldn't be a week go by where I don't see something that I've never, ever seen or thought of in my entire life. Um, and that's actually really scary. So to me, yes, look, I think um, it is getting complex, and I think the industry as a whole is, uh, the tax professionals as well as the league professions are really breaking out into more specialised areas. A general practitioner, certainly you could go and work in this space on a simple estate, but just be really cautious. I have a matter here in Melbourne not so long ago where it seemed like a really simple estate. There was a house and a small share portfolio and the guy was on social security uh, pensions here in Australia. The estate worked out, the guy was a multi-millionaire, had bank accounts in um, Japan. He, he, before he came to Australia, he'd, he'd purchased this a tax annuity uh, offshore. Um, so that's paying incomes for streams into that. Another five jurisdictions actually paying dividends into that and he was living off that. And so the estate here in Australia seemed really small. We had to get reseals of probate in all those jurisdictions, reconstruct 20 odd years worth of tax returns. And there was a legal firm here in Melbourne that were actually all put their hands up, the partners, as the executors. So they were all personally liable and needed to make sure this was dealt with. So even simple estates at times become very complicated. Um, and the tax law around here, there's a whole heap of nuances that aren't used on typical tax matters we're dealing with. So by all means, work in it, get out of your depths, put your hand up and ask. And, and we work with a lot of practitioners in that sort of space because we're not a direct threat to their ordinary client base. And it's something that you might only have a client, well, it's got to be the nature of the beast. They, they die at sporadic times. Yes. Um, it's not, it happens. Well, it's, there are peaks in the middle of winter and, and summer and heat and cold. There are statistically, there are statistically peaks when people die, yes. Goodness, okay. Yeah. But generally it's going to be something that you're not going to be doing necessarily often enough to be familiar with it. And like I'd say with small business CGT, everyone you deal with is going to be different than the previous one. 100%. You know, and that is really complicated legislation. And so again, yeah, understand it, but I'll sit down with an expert and talk around it because it does interplay into deceased estates. I had the pleasure of seeing you present recently at a seminar and in your closing comments, you're talking about someone taking on the role of executor or administrator in the case where there is no will, of course. Yeah. It's often been a default position that the accountant or the lawyer will say, yep, I'll put up my hand and I'm happy to be executor. Yes. But you made the comment that increasingly lawyers are saying no to this and I wonder what lessons should be learnt from that and what should accountants be listening to in that conversation? It's a really good good um, pick up, Robin, and I'm glad you asked the question. Um, as you know, I speak at a lot of conferences, law conferences across Australia, and last year alone um, there were three uh, different conferences in three different Australian states where one of the speakers, I generally stay for the whole conference, one of the speakers in each one of those states actually got up, had an accredited specialist in each case working in this area around wills and estates, got up and did a presentation for an hour around executors, legal practitioners not becoming executors. And this is despite the fact these guys have got a law degree, probably a postgraduate degree, probably a master's degree in wills and estates for the audience that we're dealing with, and probably already an accredited specialist. They have all that legal knowledge, and they're being told, don't act as executors. Because and of the liability. Because of the liability and the issues and, and the time that goes into that, and even the question around fees nowadays. You go to the accounting fraternity, and, and I think we're very privileged. We, we're fairly envied by the rest of the um, professional, professional bodies because we have a long-term relationship with clients. They turn up every year to do their tax or every month to have a discussion around their business. We trust it. So clients come to you and say, can you be my executor? My family's a little bit dysfunctional. And practitioners go, yeah, no problems. Happy to do that. It's an honour to be your executor. Um, you know, and, and it's another way um, subconsciously of tying the client back into the practice. But you get to the other end of that when you're actually starting to be the executor. And, you know, I have literally seen three accounting practices nearly go under, you know, just sole practitioners or two partners in a practice with the time that estates take. All of a sudden you find there's family maintenance claims against the estate. You're defending assets. You're defending things in the Supreme Court. We've never been trained to do that. With rules of evidence. Correct. So, so you, you're having to deal with all those things. And, and this is a bit cynical, but, you know, you have to literally, well, you don't literally, but you, you, do you really want to go and count grandma's undies? You know, you've got to do an inventory of assets. And, and you've got to go and deal with all of these issues, and it takes you away from your practice. And the risks around this are just exponential. And you've, you've got to take a look at that further. You know, we're both heavily involved in CPA Australia. Um, 
It's certainly been an area CPA has been a lot of focus and, and getting out to market. You know, does your PI actually cover you? It's not actually a professional appointment necessarily. It's a personal appointment. And therefore, your PI cover may not even cover you within this line of work. That's a really important distinction. Absolutely, it is. Um, no reputational damage. You know, one of the practices I was speaking about earlier, she um, she had a group of clients, um, all within very about thirty percent of her practice was with one, one family. Dad died. She was the executor, and through the administration process, it went really bad. Um, she lost thirty percent of her practice. They moved elsewhere. I'll give you another perspective on this. Many years ago, I was running a session for the ATO and one of the officers came up to me and had a dilemma. What had happened was an accountant had put his hand up to basically be executor when a client had passed away. Now, the scenario would normally be the wife would come to him and say, look, my husband's just died. You know this company or this trust better than I do. Can you please step up? And so in the case of a trust, discretionary trust, Mm. they would step up and become the trustee or director of the trustee company, as the case may be. What that meant was that the accountant now controlled that entity. So firstly, when they were then looking to apply the small business CGT concessions, it meant that potentially the accountant's personal assets are now being included with that of his clients because they're now connected. Then it went further because if he acted for trust A and trust B and trust C for three different clients, they were now connected with each other. And so you had a practical problem that if he acted for half a dozen or a dozen clients or more in his practice, they're all grouped with each other, which means none of his clients potentially would ever satisfy the $6 million threshold. That's a real concern. It was a huge problem. And the ATO is basically saying that we're trying to work around this or what can we do or is this a problem? And I'm saying, yes, I think it is. So I would always suggest that if an accountant is approached to be an executor and you're the expert in this area, not me, I'd be saying, help them out, but do it as a professional, charge fees for it and don't get legally involved. You you can actually see, I see a lot of wills drafted now whereby the accountant will be uh, specifically referred to as an advisor to the estate, as will maybe a lawyer. Um, And so they're leaving their executors to do that. Um, But you don't want to get involved in the, you know, the family politics, um, claims against the estate. And even I've seen the most um, functional families end up with restraint orders against each other. It's funny what money does to people. And death. And death. It brings out the best or the worst in people. Here, here. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to some estate issues. And look, Ian, this is something we could chat for an hour alone just on estate issues. Yeah. Um, But across the issues of things like wills and invalid wills, intestacy and assets that you can't deal with through the will. So... Firstly, to make a valid will, yeah, you know, you've got these will kits. You can pop down to the newsagent and, and lawyers absolutely love them. They love them. They love them because people go, they do these will kits, um, and probably about ninety percent, if not more, of the time, they fail. They stuff it up. They stuff it up, and so what happens? All of a sudden, lawyers can—that's that's where fees come from. It's, it's lawyers would actually encourage people to go and use those things because it creates issues and that creates litigation. And as I said earlier, largest growth of litigation in Australia. Now, a question that's often come up and people wonder, why do you have to use the same pen? Now, my understanding of this, you don't <laughs> literally have to use the same pen, but if there are two different pens used, and it is a legal requirement to have a will witnessed by two people who Correct. are independent, that if they're using different pens, one black, one blue, then it could be called into doubt if it ever comes before a court that they weren't both present at the same time. 100%. Whereas if they're using the same pen, then it effectively removes that doubt. 100% right. I actually sat in a house a while ago with uh, one of my trustee company clients and uh, we went through this will and were signing it. You also need to initial every, every page on the way through. We went through 12 pens, literally. Uh, in this house, this lady had these pens and every one of them seemed to fail. As well. Like the will was actually like 50 pages long. And uh, yeah, it was a disaster, absolute disaster. But, You'd almost be better off starting in with a... a well, we had to. We had, we thankfully had, you know... Multiple copies. Yes, yes. it was incredible. Intestacy. Now, it doesn't mean you yeah. die intestate when you die intestate. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So an intestacy is when you die without a will. Okay, so every... Um, and this is really interesting, you know, like from a tax law perspective, the Income Tax Assessment Act is national, okay? And, and the world that we work in is that. Every state is whether secession law or estate law, secession law or the relevant estate acts. Like trust law. Like trust law is an estate-based area. And so it's the law of those estates that actually applies. And so every estate or territory in Australia was subscribed to uh, different intestacy provisions as to who inherits what in the case of an absence of a will. Um, and realistically, that then creates a, a different sort of estate that you're dealing with. Yeah. 
you can prepare wills in contemplation of marriage. So just to touch on, if you get married, your will becomes invalid. Correct. So if you are concerned that there may not be time between when you walk down the aisle and when you're perhaps heading off on your honeymoon... Um, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> it does happen. Then yeah. you can propel a will in contemplation of marriage. It's signed off, executed in the draw. Um, let's say he stands her up at the altar, then it means that the single will is still valid. If they do get married, then the new will automatically becomes invoked. Okay. I didn't now, know that, so that, that's, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, now, so there divorce. You go. Um, yeah. I spoke with a family lawyer recently, Sarah Keenan, and it would be worthwhile of people going back to listen to that episode because I asked her specifically what happens when you get divorced. Mm. Um, basically, it is state-based as well. But she said it's not that the will becomes invalid, it's just that they probably wouldn't honour the terms of it if you were divorced and you left everything to your former spouse. So certainly you need advice on when you get divorced. Absolutely you need advice. And, and, um, you you know, even even if there's a a degree of contention around that, you know, um, I was saying to you earlier before this podcast, the worst matter I've ever seen before, you know, it was brought even to my desk, they'd spent a million dollars on legal fees. And the estate was how big? About six, you know, five, six mil. One sixth spent on legal fees. Money and legal fees in this area, if there's, if there's an area to open it up, one would sort of go, hey, you know, take responsibility and make life easier for those you're leaving behind. So just so everyone's clear on terminology we're going to be using, if you die with a valid will, then obviously the will sets out who the assets go to and how, and we have what's called an executor. Correct. But if you die without a valid will, then you're said to have died intestate. With an administrator. And you have an administrator and yeah. letters of administration Correct. rather than the will yes. are used to govern how the estate is run. That's 100% right. And really what that instrument <clears throat> is doing is showing to parties, you know, the it represents that you have the authority to act on behalf of the estate. So you'll find that banks, uh, share registries, these sort of things won't actually deal with you, uh, titles offices, unless you have the piece of paper to deal with. Now that's also, as you sort of indicated, state-based. Queensland, for example, you don't necessarily need probate, depending so you, on the assets. Let's go back a step. Probate is... What? The, the, the Supreme Court saying, yes, the doors are open, let's administer this estate? The Supreme Court's effectively saying, hey, we recognise that this is a valid will, the last will and testament of a person, and it's a valid instrument, and, and we're going to pass this across to Robin and Jacobson to actually go and administer. So the court is giving you the authority to stand in the shoes of the deceased and to administer that. Um, and, and therefore it's a proven document. And this will generally be roughly six months after death, but it can be longer, shorter? No, 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 no. It really depends, again, on a state-based thing. Okay. Um, the, the probate process, I, I have one here that we're... Uh, again, we don't deal with probate, we deal with post-death, but um, literally the probate application was going in about five days after death. Okay. Um, the daughter would find out from America to come and bury mum and this sort of stuff, and so it was happening very quick and they needed some very quick advice around the back end of it. But, you know, the six-month rule that you're sort of talking about is the ability to make a claim against the estate. And so once an executor or an LPR, legal personal representative, administrator, um, is actually appointed, then there's generally, again, depends on what state you're in, Victoria, it's six months where somebody's got a right to come and make a claim against the estate. Um, And you'd be well advised to get legal advice and probably not distribute the estate during that process. What's the legal status of the assets from date of death? And let's say probate is granted four months later. Mm -hmm. In that four month period, we know the tax law says go back to date of death and, and you've got any activities from that point going to the, the estate return rather than the date of death return. Yeah. But the, what's the legal status of the assets? Who owns them in the meantime? It's probably more of a legal question, The um, but, but to me it's in limbo because at that point there's nobody actually officially appointed to act and you can certainly find there's multiple copies of wills sometimes arrive you know, and they have to work out which one's going to be valid and which one it's going to be um, you know, approved or even finding someone to stand up as an administrator sometimes can be very difficult, particularly if somebody doesn't have families. But in that stage, it just seems to sit in this limbo land. Money will stay in super funds, the trustee will continue to do that, the houses will stay as they are. The bank accounts frozen? Or bank there's... accounts are frozen. Okay. Yeah, you'll definitely find that going on. And so, you know, all of a sudden people can't access money, um, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Now, there are broadly, and correct me if I'm wrong, because there might be a fourth one lurking with um, your knowledge of this, but I understood there are broadly three types of assets that couldn't be dealt with through a will. Yep. Your jointly held assets, so yep. the jointly held property or the bank account that automatically goes to the other person. Yeah, that's, that's why survivorship. Um, so yes. Absolutely, although I will note on that, and it's an interesting area, it, it would ordinarily pass by survivorship, but I do understand under uh, the trustee in bankruptcy um, that if the estate was bankrupt um, or the deceased was to be bankrupt prior to death, that they may be able to wind that back into the bankrupt estate. Just a, a footnote. Okay, yeah. thank you. Secondly, assets that are held in entities. So by that I mean the company owns the asset or the asset's held in trust. It's not held by the deceased person. Correct. So when they die, the asset still remains held legally by that other party. 
Well, you know, you've named companies, so the deceased doesn't own the assets of the company. What it owns is shares. And the shares will pass through the estate, but not the assets in the company. That's exactly right. And and so people get very confused. You'll see, particularly on those informal wills, you'll sort of, well, the the will kits that you were referring to earlier, you know, people will, you know, gift assets out of companies. It's not their asset to give. And it's the same out of an inter vivos trust or family trust. Those are not their assets. You, You... from an estate perspective, we need to start looking at loan accounts between the deceased and, and those entities, whether there's a Division 7A issue, whether there's, in fact, monies that's owed back to the deceased. Well, there could be um, liabilities or assets going in either direction, or abs- UPEs, unpaid present entitlements. Abs- absolutely right. And they are all issues that need to be addressed through in this sort of area. And the control of those things, it doesn't necessarily fall to the executor, nor do you necessarily want to be there. The um, we, we certainly had issues whereby... You know, we, we use, and I think you've had Robin Erskine in here before, Brook Bird, so she's one of the people we use, Brook Bird, around estates where there's companies, and we'll sometimes bring in a provisional administrator over the top of that estate to administer that. Because if you go in there as an executor or appoint yourself as a director of that company, you now become liable, and you start looking at things like SGC, a GST, taxes, all these obligations. Outstanding lodgements. Outstanding lodgements. You know, they stand there. Um, a, a trustee of uh, an administrator of these, such as Brooke Bird, would be able to, they have extra protections under the Act, and their assets aren't protected, or are protected, I should say. We've had issues there, very, um, one in Queensland was a great big rural property, and there was literally a garbage tip in the backyard. Somebody had literally bought all this stuff in, covered it over with dirt, the guy died, um, it looks like great property, but the EPA turned up. Now, that director, thankfully, was a, a, a professional. It wasn't a, a normal sort of director. It was somebody um, at such as Brook Bird that was actually able to administer that. We've had uh, areas with brothels and these sort of things, a really educating sort of area, but there's issues in there around PSI, are these employees, are these contractors, all sorts of stuff that needs to be looked at. And if you're going to stand into the shoes as, as a, a, a director, um, you really need to be aware of those, and sometimes it's worth bringing in a professional to take that role instead. And we can talk yeah. later about the control of those entities. Yes. Um, another um, which can't be left through the will is, of course, superannuation, which is a, a big misunderstanding out there. People think, I've got money in super, I'll just direct where it goes through my will. Yeah, 100% right. It is a trust. It's held in trust. So the trustee of the super fund determines where it goes, unless, of course, you've got a binding death benefit nomination. And aren't we seeing some increased litigation there? We certainly are. Um, absolutely, we are. Also, reversionary pension in there. Look, I think it's probably an area that we're going to see even more litigation. We've already seen issues around accountants and financial planners that have tried to assist in the preparation of binding death benefit nominations. Got it wrong. Um, that has serious ramifications. Um, from a high level, we're also seeing that the superannuation industry, the industry-based funds in Australia, have this growing tendency, certainly over the last few years, of trying to pass those proceeds across to the estate, unless there's directives not to. Um, so by doing that, what they're actually doing is passing the tax liability and responsibility to the executor, as opposed to the trustee. If the trustee pays directly out to somebody, they have to determine the tax status. They pass it to an estate, the executors have to. And if you start looking around, we then need to work out whether there's a dependency or an interdependency relationship. And when you start looking around those areas, you're going, you know, it's very, very complicated. Um, not defined, you have to start looking at tax rulings, and it's as wide as a, you can drive a Herman tank through this and stuff. And you've got both, well, three things. There's the the will, the superannuation fund trustees. I'm looking at the, um, yeah, the constituent-type documents. Yes. You've got the superannuation law and regulations and the tax law and regulations. Absolutely. Throw in a state law over the top. 100%. And if you're an executor, you get these monies in here and you don't tax it right and you distribute it out, um, the ATO can come after your house. You're personally liable. You're personally liable. And so no wonder superannuation funds want to try and pass it down in that sort of area. Of course. Um, a lot of private rulings, if you look at the private writing ruling, are just, just pages upon pages and pages on this area. It's just very contentious. You mentioned something called survivorship, and I just wanted to loop back to that. There is something called the law of survivorship. So yep. if, uh, if you and I have mutual wills and I leave everything to you and you leave everything to me and then we both die at the same time, the law of survivorship says the oldest person is taken to die first. Correct. And it just gives you a, really a pecking order or a tiebreaker as to, well, which will do we actually work with knowing you know, 100%. they're both killed yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, so that can get tricky. No, very good point. Yeah. Very good point. So in, you get the phone call to say that someone's passed away. What are the things you should be turning your minds to in those early days from a tax perspective? It's a really good question. Look, I think um, we'll go to tax in a moment, but one of the things that's really important here is that um, if you um, effectively intermingle with an estate, I think is the legal term, that is that you start dealing with an estate as though you're the executor 
and you are the appointed executor, you may find you're not able to renounce that position and it might not be a position you want. And so just, I guess the first thing is be very cautious what you do do Why in, in that role. Why could you not renounce? If you've already started interacting with the estate and dealing uh, with the estate... You'll be taken to have already started acting. Correct. Okay, and therefore the ability to renounce, particularly if it's a very difficult estate, may be in question and one should seek legal advice. However, once you do have control of an estate, either, um, and I'll refer as an LPR, legal personal representative, that's an executor or an administrator, you need to start looking around that deceased affairs and start looking at um, outstanding tax lodgements. Was that person trading uh, as a sole um, proprietor? hair salon, whatever sort of business, and to the extent they were, you have obligations around GST. You find that a lot in primary production. Um, interesting, the GST registrations tend to have cancelled the day before you die. Um, and, and so all of a sudden you've got this entity where you need to now go in and re-register for GST if you're going to continue to conduct that through the business. If you're not, you need to go through and actually declare a disposal of those assets that And there can be date. adjustments also on death. 100%. Same with stock, you need to make stock elections if you're going to roll those over. And, and so realistically, you, you need to be going through and sort of going, well, what affairs did the deceased have? And I, and I think that um, the way I like to describe it is you, 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 if it was you, you were in their shoes. If it was you, what obligations did you have? Do you have payroll tax? Do you have GST? Do you have income tax, outstanding tax lodgements, etc.? I encourage people to look back retrospectively. Um, outstanding tax returns. The worst I've got is 32 years. Oh, goodness. Um, and and payable or refundable? Uh, all payable. This guy was actually running two businesses. Um, in his own name um, and, and, and that is not unusual 32 years might be but 5, 10 years not unusual maybe somebody's lodged the last 3 years not 10 years prior to that the executor is liable for every single one of those outstanding tax returns and must administer that before they distribute the estate Now we say liable liable for the unpaid tax on those amounts not just liable for penalties for family to lodge Correct Correct and that's a real that's a real point so if you liable to the extent of the estate assets um, and if you find it's a bankrupt estate, then you need to then take unnecessary steps to put it into um, a bankruptcy provision. Can you quickly comment on that? So if an estate has uh, greater liabilities than are available assets, you'd call that a bankrupt estate? I certainly would, and I'd be going to a bankruptcy practitioner, sending it to a bankrupt practitioner so that it's actually dealt with properly through those particular areas. And then that protects the executor for the LPR from any personal liability beyond 100% that. right. If you go further down the track, though, and you're actually, uh, you do administer an estate, you pass everything out to the beneficiaries and then the ATO comes along. There's a 1959 case, High Court case, I think it was, Brown's case, um, where the commissioner actually tried to follow that money trial with the beneficiaries and lost, putting back in control of the executor. And I think it's um, 254 of the Tax Administration Act. The executor can be personally liable for that. So if you distributed the corpus of the estate um, and there's a tax liability, you're liable. I have a case in Queensland at the moment. Exactly what happened. Um, there was an $80,000 tax debt. The law firm acted as executor, um, they distributed the assets offshore, um, failed to recognise there was a, a tax liability. That law firm is now up for 80 grand in tax. Ouch. Yeah. Um, just while you're speaking about amounts going offshore, I think sometimes people forget about the K3 CGT event. Absolutely. And I'm kind of jumping ahead to the tax issues, but I'll just um, bring this in now. So if you leave assets to someone who is tax advantaged, so I'm going to include a non-resident in that or yep. a complying super fund or a tax-exempt body, yep. then the normal rule that says we disregard CGT gains or losses upon death um, does not apply in this case. There is a, a CGT event K3 that can produce tax outcomes. 100% right. So that 12810 provision that you're referring to, which is the automatic rollover, doesn't exist. But it's interesting, you, you say what happens on death, you know, while well, you start administering an estate. One of your obligations is to lodge a date of death tax return. But it might be two or three years down the track before you can um, say, okay, I can, you know, I can now close the estate. It's only at that time that you can work out that you can actually pass those assets offshore. So you're required to go back to the date of death tax return and to do a K3 event, an amendment of that date of death tax return. And you can amend a date of death return? You can if it's within the amendment periods. And so in Australia at the current time, amendment periods, depending on the complexity, um, two to four years. And so all of a sudden you can be outside of that sort of area where you can't, you're statutorily barred to go going back. I had one case where I was actually forced, or directed I should say, to send the HAO a cheque for over a million dollars uh, for a K3 event. We gave advice, um, as did council, that this was outside the amendment periods and, and couldn't be dealt with. Um, we sent that cheque to the ATO, declaring the gain. They sent it back to us some months later, saying that it was outside of the amendment periods. They also sent back interest, which means we had to lodge another tax return. <laughs> 
Oh dear. <laughs> but, but literally, literally, you can be outside of that, and you start talking. I know today we're not talking about testamentary trusts and life interests, but if there's a testamentary trust imposed into this, so you give mum a life interest um, of the income of a trust, and mum may live for another fifteen or twenty years. She says she's still supposed to go back to date of death for the K3 event. And it's a real trap. And the, and the issue I was talking about in Queensland was, in fact, exactly that. It was a K3 event. But the other issue to just, um, and slight deviation to put in the back of your mind, is K6. Okay, and K6 event is around a company. So you might have a pre-85 company. Or, or units and a unit trust. Or units and a unit trust, yep. 100%. And, and, you know, the, the entity was pre that. But if the underlying assets um, of that entity are actually post-85, then whilst your transfer of those shares offshore um, may not be a K3 event because it's a pre-85 share or unit holding, there can be a deemed disposal of the assets within that entity on the way out called a K6. And so there's all these entrapments that go through this area as well. So, Anne, a really significant and, and big issue of late to do with administration has been accessing the data of a deceased client. Yeah. Now, historically, this has been available through the agent portal. Correct. And someone passes away and you might go back in and find they've got outstanding lodgements or taxes due or whatever the case is, and you deal with it through the estate as normal. But this data is not available on ATO Online for Agents, which is the new online... I don't want to call it the new portal. The ATO doesn't like us calling it that. Um, but this information is not available on the new ATO Online services. It's also important to point out that at 11pm on the 29th of November, which is um, only a, a couple of weeks away, the agent portals will be closing. This is the tax Correct. agent and the bass agent portals. Correct. Um, and I emphasise this will not affect the business portal. So if they're shutting down because basically they're saying so few agents are now using it, we've migrated everyone else across to the, the new ATO online, there is a really big problem because you can't access the data of your deceased client. So where is this at? Because I know there's also been a recent announcement by the Inspector General. Great question, Robin. Um, you're obviously staying right up to date. Perhaps I can uh, address first of all the Inspector General of Taxation. Um, and the inspectors come out and sort of called on a review um, of the tax administration of the ATO and the way they're dealing with deceased estates. It's, it's an area that I'd first of all like to say that I'm actually a very big advocate for the Commissioner and his staff that work in this space. Um, it's a very difficult area and um, literally their role is to um, apply the tax law, not make the law, and it's their job to apply it. And so in that regard, they're doing a very good job. The, um, the, the ATO, the Commissioner, has issued uh, a number of PCGs of late in this space, and we're seeing a lot more activity, which I referred to earlier on in this podcast. So I really, really do recommend that sort of area and uh, that people make contributions to that. I think probably the trigger point, um, in, in my view anyway, of this is perhaps the tax agents portal issue that's probably brought the Inspector General to the table. And um, the tax agent's portal issue, as you sort of noted, is that the old portal's being uh, disengaged or turned off at the end of this month and is going to be replaced with uh, ATO Online. And, and realistically, what's really happened here is the Tax Administration Act has a provision that um, and notes whom an ATO officer can disclose information to. And to the extent that an ATO officer doesn't disclose or discloses to, out, to people outside of that particular legislation, there's a penalty of two years imprisonment for that particular ATO staffer. And so it's an area that's taken fairly seriously within the ATO and reinforced regularly. A strict interpretation of that, particularly with the new online services coming into place, has really sort of overlaid that and sort of identified that, you know, that information really shouldn't be available to tax agents. And so at the moment we're going to come to a standstill at the end of the month whereby we're going to be limited to what we can access retrospectively. The ATO, big data, data match with all the registry of birth registers um, and deaths here in Australia, and so they know when people die. So bottom line, an agent can only act for someone who is... Alive. ...breathing and kicking. Correct. Um, or a company or a trust. Um, <clears throat> but not a deceased estate. Not a deceased person. Uh, a deceased person, but their estate going forward, you, you can still access... So they can access act the estate, but they can't access the data of the deceased. Correct. And so at the moment, it's an issue. It's an issue that... And, and uh, the Commissioner has been very, very proactive with, and, and we direct engagement, I've been signing with the ATO, the number of the professional bodies in this space. And so really what's happening is there's a number of measures being put into place to try and overcome this particular area. Um, the ATO will be making some announcements on that later this month, uh, probably later this week, I believe, but certainly the portal will be turned off. And I think it's one of those things, watch the space. Hopefully we'll have some fixes on this within the next uh, few months. But in the interim, we're going to be locked down from that pre-death period. Should agents be able to access the data, just practically and logistically? Is it something that is going to make everyone's life easier if they could access oh, look, it? I really think they should. Um, but, you know, again, until you know, if somebody, if you were to die today, 
and I hope you don't, Robin, but if you were to die today, you know, until somebody's actually got the legal authority... Better through... to say if you died yesterday, because I know I haven't. OK, thank you. Let's go yesterday. Um, so so if, if you die, until somebody's actually appointed as your LPR, there's that period of uncertainty. And so as soon as somebody's appointed as your LPR, that person should have the right to representation of a tax agent, as they do attorney. Um, and that tax agent can then go back and should be able to look at the retrospective affairs. A lot of people, even attorneys, um, in my experience, don't understand tax. And so it's a matter of going back and helping them through that. So certainly that's the agenda and the ATO are working um, with Treasury and the federal government in relation to trying to deal with that issue retrospectively. Okay. So turning now to a bunch of tax issues, and look, we couldn't possibly do justice to all of these in our allocated time. Um, these are really topics in their own right. but. Perhaps if we just start with, we've got a basic three-pronged approach. We've got the date of death return for the deceased. Yep. We've got the estate return for the period of administration. Yep. And then we've got the beneficiaries tax returns when, of course, they become presently entitled to assets yep. and income, etc. Yep. Um, so any particular comments or observations about that? I think most people are pretty comfortable knowing that income belonged to the deceased or it's been made by the estate or once the asset passes to the beneficiary, it's their income. Yeah, okay, so from the uh, from the estate administration side, when you start to act as executive, you need to lodge a date of death tax return of the deceased. So really from my uh, 1st of July to my date of death, you need to lodge a tax return in there. And in, in that period, you get access to the full 18,200 tax three threshold. So does the estate. It is absolutely fantastic. $36,400 per year. This is the best tax planning opportunity. You die, you get two tax-free thresholds. Imagine. 31st of December, 1st of January. It's it's opportune. But you only get it once. <laughs> yes, but I don't think people go quite that aggressive with their tax planning. No. So you, you need to go through and deal with those things. It's really important to understand that the capital losses or... Um, Income losses that may be sitting in the deceased returns do not go into the deceased estate. Uh, they quarantine at that particular point in time. Well, they go to the grave with you, don't they? 100% they do. And unfortunately, I see a lot of accountants actually try and roll those into the estate, which is which is wrong, um, and leaves the executor exposed, which leaves them exposed as well. Now, the estate's a separate legal entity. Um, it needs its own income tax file number. Um, and realistically, it's going to be assessed under Section 99 rates. And for the first three years, that is similar to exactly the same as the marginal tax rates that we have. Our progressive marginal tax rates, the 18,200 tax-free without Medicare levy. There's a little bit of a nuance through there. And after that three-year period, it converts to effectively still under Section 99 rates, but without the 18,200 tax-free. Uh, the Commissioner really deems that an estate can should be administered within the first three years. Be a bone of contention around that. A lot of estates do take longer than that, but certainly there's concessional tax within that area. What's important to realise, though, is that the commissioner can also throw Section 99A at uh, taxpayers, and uh, a lot of our taxpayers or accountants would be aware of this through intervivos trusts. But effectively, that's the highest marginal tax rate that will be applied to every single dollar of the estate, including removal of CGT discounting. Um, and he'd do that if he believed the estate administration was being delayed purely for the purposes of attaining a tax advantage, i.e. the beneficiaries that had higher marginal tax rates. Final year of administration, I'd refer listeners to IT 2622. It's a tax ruling around present entitlement. And it talks around three stages of estate administration um, and how that should be taxed. And it's really in that final stage when you've really gone and done everything, you've sold the assets, you've paid all the debts and you're now just sitting on either cash or assets to distribute that you could turn around and make a beneficiary presently entitled to that particular income. And in that final year you have the ability to either draw a line in the sand um, as of today's date or 30th of June, make them fully accessible for the entire year. It's also important there though Robin to note is that if you make an interim distribution and believe it or not beneficiaries generally don't like to wait for three years for their money, they might want some money in advance. Um, and if that sort of happens, then what you need to do is be very careful how you do that because you could be making that person presently entitled to some of the trust income or some of the estate income and you need to declare that proportional interest within the estate return and advise that beneficiary of that, uh, that interest within their own, to declare within their own returns. While you were talking about trust distributions, I want to flesh out uh, this based on what happens if they're presently entitled before they die. Now, if we're talking a managed fund, a unit trust, something like that, where there is a potentially distribution made whilst they're still alive, um, then of course it's their income, it goes into the date of death return if that was post 1 July yeah. of the year they died. But it would be very unusual for a discretionary trust trustee to create a present entitlement any time prior to the end of June. Correct. Now, it is possible to do a, an interim distribution, and I always use the analogy of the proverbial bus that wipes you out with no warning versus you switch off the, the switch in the, the hospital where you've got time to plan these things. 
Nice if, analogy. <laughs> but if we're in the hospital bed, and terminally ill is what I'm driving at here, where you can determine the point of death effectively, then you could do an interim distribution before they die. Absolutely. That creates present entitlement, and then their share of the net income goes into that date of death tax return. But I often come across accountants where they ask me, you know, can we create present entitlement at June 30, but they died back in February. Now, if the present entitlement wasn't created before they died, you cannot make someone who is no longer alive presently entitled. And so the next question I often get is, well, can't we just give it to the estate? But it is very unusual, and, and please tell me if it even is not possible to do this, that an estate of a deceased beneficiary would be indeed itself a beneficiary of that trust. You're 100% right. In fact, the example you gave a few minutes ago about making somebody presently entitled, I did that last week on another matter um, for similar reasons. It wasn't a bus, but <laughs> okay. similar reasons. Um, but you're right. If you get to the end of the year and somebody's already deceased, they're generally not a trust object. Um, and so the ability to make their estate um, you know, a beneficiary of the estate is often very limited. I have seen the occasional deed where it will actually make estates a potential trust object. Um, Lawyers but you don't need to, seem to like it. They don't. But you also need to be really careful if you're doing that. You know, there's these really weird things called family trust elections. You know, like, and that trust, the estate will often or will fall outside of that FTE. It would be outside the family group. And, and so for that area there, then you're starting to access into, you know, your family trust distribution tax regime. If you've ever looked at the exception within the family trust election rules, it does talk about a deceased estate, but basically every other member of your entire family, as defined, has to be, deceased. Has to be dead. And that's actually a pretty sad state of affairs when you think about it. I guess if you're the youngest member of a family, going back to what you said earlier, and they all died in an aeroplane, maybe that works. Maybe, so, but <laughs> it's an unusual situation. 100% right. Okay. Um, CGT issues. We've seen the recent practical compliance guideline where the ATO will give you more time than two years to sell a property that was the main residence. Yep. And what I'm hearing around the traps is that generally when accountants are applying for it, they are getting this discretion, which suggests to me that the circumstances in which they're applying for it are reasonable and the ATO is happy to give them a bit more time. Uh, two, two, two things there, Robin. The, the reason that, well, one of the reasons that drove that PCG, and it quite some time to get that one through the door, but um, that PCG came out is that a lot of people were exceeding the two-year period um, and were going to the commissioners. For reasons beyond their control. Exactly right. And they were going to the commissioners, um, applying, you know, getting to disgrace, apply his discretion or go through a private ruling. And what was happening, he was being bombarded with a disproportionate number of queries um, and requests in this sort of area. And it was getting out of hand. And that's why the PCG came out to try and reduce that traffic. So now, as you sort of point out, the PCG does open up an additional window after that um, two-year period. You have a carve-out there, a safe harbour for an extra 18 months. So um, if you fall into the criteria of that, you can certainly do it. If you fall outside of that criteria, then you still need to go in for a ruling with the commissioner to be able to get it. But uh, hopefully it's going to reduce the traffic. And certainly in the, the number of many returns that we've dealt with since that uh, PCG coming out, it's been very useful to be able to rely on it. Good. Um, I wanted to comment on further CGT issues. Some years ago I rang the ATO about what happens if you've made an election under the Small Business CGT concessions to use the two-year replacement asset rollover, yep. which after two years would create a J5 or a J6 event, mm -hmm. or if you do buy a replacement asset within two years, you've got your deferred J2 gain sitting there at some point in the future. And I asked about what happens if you die in the two-year period before the J5 happens, or if you die once you've bought your replacement asset but before the J2 happens. The short answer is nothing causes those events to happen any earlier than prescribed by the law. So J5 and J6 cannot happen any earlier than two years from the original CGT event. So if you die in the meantime, nothing brings forward this deferred gain. Okay. Nothing yep. transfers the gain into the estate or to the beneficiaries. Uh, similarly with the J2, if you've bought your replacement asset but you die before you perhaps sell it or the status of that asset changes, again, nothing can make the J2 happen. Gains are disregarded on death apart from the K3, which isn't relevant here. And I ended up having a conversation with an ATO officer where we both agreed that this was the outcome. And again, I remarked that this was a quite an incredible tax planning opportunity <laughs> to which he also agreed you only get it once. But in all seriousness, there is nothing that causes a deferred gain to be freshened up because you die before the J5, the J6 or the J2 gain happens. Um, it's just one of the things that goes through to the keeper. Look, I think it's one of those examples, um, and there's many, many, many of them, of the nuances of, of this landscape. Um, it, it's, you know, we, we all deal, most practitioners deal with tax. Um, there are a whole heap of nuances in this area that you can accidentally screw up. 
And I think this is one of these where it actually works to the taxpayer's advantage. 100%. Taking that a step further, it's one thing if you die in the two-year period before the J5 happens, but I think it's another if you liquidate a company or vest a trust. And I've always wondered about perhaps the ability to uh, make a company or a trust die, um, which is an entirely different set of circumstances to, of course, an individual passing away. Anyway, perhaps for another day. Leave that one hanging. That's a very interesting question. Another issue that goes to the grave with you is your hex debt. Now, I know that one point Christopher Pine, when he was in the government, wanted to revisit this. He but, certainly did. But the current tax law says if you have a help debt, I should call it what it's now called, not what it used to be called, and you pass away without having repaid that debt, uh, there is no mechanism for that to be repaid out of your estate. You're 100% right. Um, it, it is, however, incumbent that the executor does need to assess that in your date of death return. So to the extent that your income is below above the threshold, that you'll still, the estate will still But that would date be a repayment for that year, wouldn't it? For that year, but post that, the debt's sort of swiped off. And, mm. and you're right, it was... Um, Christopher certainly did look at bringing that back in. Um, very unpopular, as a bit like the last election, you know, where the uh, the Labor Party were started talking around bringing in death tax again, which is something I think will come back. We'll have to come back to the table in Australia. But look, Ian, I, my personal view is I cannot see why a hex debt or a help debt is any different to any other liability that you owe. Yes, it is based on your income levels as to whether you repay it, but it, effectively it's still liability that you owe. So it's I, think, it's, I think it should be paid out of the estate. It's still a liability, but it, it's it's interesting. If you start looking at the demographics of people that have hex debts, they're generally not our age. They're generally younger people, um, and they might have just finished university, might have just got married, might have a kid, debts out outside of their possible control. And from a society perspective, you know, if that hex debt had to be paid out of the estate, there was no life insurance, there might have been a little equity in the house, all of a sudden that entire family could be on the street. And so I think this is so social. An equity issue. It's an equity issue. It's a mm. social conscious sort of thing. And, and um, look, I subscribe to that. But then you get you know mature age students, and and you know with massive hex debts or help debts, and, and it's just like maybe they should be paid out. But where do you draw the line? Difficult. Yeah. So div seven a. If you've got a loan in place already, seven year loan. Yep. then your understanding would be that the trustee would need to keep making those yearly repayments which have been started to be made by the deceased. That's correct. And to the extent that they didn't make those repayments, um, then there'd be that deemed dividend to the extent of that failure. In the estate? Within the estate. Okay. But if you're in, say, the period between the making of the loan and the lodgement day for that year, which is the date by which the loan agreement needs to be entered into to avoid correct. a deemed dividend... Correct. And they died before the loan agreement was entered into. The liability would pass to the estate, but there'd be no obligation for the trustee to make repayments because there was never an agreement entered into. That's 100% right. Okay. And so the commissioner really sort of says, well, the deceased didn't have an opportunity to enter into that loan agreement. Um, it's it's not a debt that belongs to the estate. The estate's not the one that's actually borrowed the money. So you can't have a Division 7A issue with an entity that wasn't the recipient of the money. And so it falls through the cracks. So the estate still needs to deal with it, but you just don't have a Division 7A issue. Okay. But I think well, the other thing to really point out through there, Robin, also is that, you know, I see a lot of estates where Division 7A issues haven't been addressed retrospectively. Um, you know, and the accountants, the lawyers turn up and there's all these sort of issues. Well, the executor still stands in the shoes of the deceased. So you need to now look retrospectively all the way back and say, when, when did that Division 7A issue trigger? Do I have to go back three, four, two years, depending on your amendment periods, and actually do a deemed dividend back there when it should have actually been declared? Um, and so it opens up this Pandora's back box retrospectively as well. Now, if there's a pre-4th of December 97 loan, mm-hmm. then to me this is a bit like the situation where the loan agreement wasn't entered into. It's still a liability that passes. So we've got some pretty big loans sitting around the country that are quarantined, which you, have been... You really shocked me. Right? Sitting there for, what are we talking, 22 years now? Yes. About to be 22 years in, in, next month. And these are still obligations that uh, will fall back on the estate when the individual dies. So it's always been a deferral, not a complete disregarding or exemption or... or um, totally agree. A safe harbour, if you like. So let's talk about a $5 million loan, which has been sitting there since 1997, passes into the estate. One of two things can happen. Either the company turns around to the estate and says, don't worry about paying it back, no obligation um, continues, in which case we've now got a deemed dividend for the whole amount of the loan, mm-hmm. and you can say goodbye to half of it in terms of tax to the ATO, or the company will insist on the repayment, which now depletes the value of the estate. So when the family thought they were going to inherit $6 million, it turns out they're only inheriting $1 million because that's got to be paid back. But what I would then look at is 
who owns the shares in the company? Who are they passing to? Because yes. if they pass to the surviving spouse, then effectively they still control the value and all you've done is change a receivable into cash at bank and you still effectively get the benefit of it through a shareholder. But if the shareholder's passed to a third party or a brother or someone who's going to keep running the business outside the immediate family, you may have that separation of the control of the entity and it's now trapped in the company instead of it being in the estate. So a host of issues there. And hence, you know, the reason I'm saying there's litigation growth in this area. Uh, it really yes. is. And, and look, I think that's... You know, accountants, we can be very cute um, as a profession in relation to, we, we focus on tax planning and, and dealing with things properly like that. We're not thinking about the succession issues. And if there's any messages um, to, to practitioners, it's to say, also think about what's down the track. It's very important. Absolutely. Just to leap back to super briefly, the SG amnesty, which is currently before Parliament, and yep. take two, we'll see whether it gets through this time, a question that I have put to the ATO, and this now appears in a blog that's on our website under the SG Amnesty Q&A, I asked the ATO if there was a situation where you've got an employer who should have got super all those years ago, you never paid it, they died, their estate has been wound up, and now out of moral and legal obligation you come forward and make an SG Amnesty payment, what happens to the money? Now you and I had a chat about this did, um, yes. about a year ago. and. We had a discussion and you said to me that the payment is still super, but it doesn't go to the super fund. There's no point because they have now retired, albeit permanently. So therefore, the payment goes effectively straight to the estate. And I asked you whether there's any time limit on reopening an old deceased estate. And you said... No. You're an executor or an LPR for life. And so it's very common... um, Well. It does happen quite frequently that there'll be assets that arrive um, after you feel you've administered the estate. You might have, you know, going back to international issues, you know, mum may have inherited a cottage um, offshore somewhere that nobody knew about and all of a sudden it comes up and now you need to go back and deal with that particular asset. And reopen the estate. Reopen the estate, reopen the tax file number, deal with that asset, distribute it out to the beneficiaries in accordance. And so to the extent that superannuation falls into the estate, Absolutely, that reopens the estate. The estate then needs to, and that executor, LPR that's working in there, needs to work out again whether there's going to be tax payable or not. And to the extent that that person's died, then it will be their executor that has the obligation to stand in now and start to unwind all this stuff. So two things that come up. One is we don't need to worry about binding death benefit nominations because, as I said, it's bypassing the super fund. It's going straight to the estate. Yep. And the other thing is, if you're leaving the money to someone who at the time was a dependent, they might have been 17 years of age, but they're now 25 because it's all these years later that the amnesty payment's being made, uh, I have worked through the provisions and the regs, and it does go back to the date of death. In other words, how old was the person when the deceased died? And if they're a dependent at that time, it takes on that character even though they might be 25 now yeah, by the time they receive the payment. You're, you're 100% right. And that gets yeah. really technical. So there are going to be all these questions about how old was everybody and dates and where does it go and how does it get taxed? Let me throw another one at you then. You know, you're going down to this regime. You're seeing at the moment, you know, we had this little banking royal commission in Australia a little while ago, so there are now payments being paid out to people. Well, I guess they so charge them the fees, so they should therefore right. refund these fees. So some of those estates are closed. And they're going to get reopened. That's right. And so we're now seeing estates where, hey, there's $1,000 come in from... X organisation. And the cost of reopening the estate, the legal fees, is going to be disproportionate to any amounts that are paid back to the estates. Correct. Goodness. And who funds it? It's a big problem. Who does pay for it? The the executor? Well, why would you? I wouldn't take money out of my pocket. And yet Um, there are no estate funds left because they've all been distributed. Maybe you now have a bankrupt estate? Question mark. Gosh. Thank you. Really good point. (laughs) Final tax issue I think we should cover today before we move on to uh, some final issues. The main residence exemption. There are proposed changes to deny the main residence exemption to foreign residents and listeners will be uh, well acquainted with my advocacy efforts on this over two and a half years now. Again, you and I have had a number of discussions about the proposed changes because of the impact on deceased estates. Correct. Um, I would just basically say don't die overseas, it's too hard. I think if you have a client that's looking at death overseas, that you get them to hop on an aeroplane, fly back to Australia, try and do what you can to re-establish their main residency, tax residency here in Australia before they die. It's going to make a huge difference because in a nutshell, 
the residency status of the property when it's sold, in other words, the MRE status, I should say, Correct. is based on where the deceased is resident when they die and where the beneficiary is resident when they sell. So you could have a fellow who owns the property for 30 years, lives in it as a resident, hmm. moves overseas, then dies, leaves it to his daughter who lives in it for 20 years as a resident, then she moves overseas, rents it out for a while and then sells it. They've lived in it for a combined 50 years and yet there would not be one day of main residence exemption available on that fact. And it seems really, really unfair to me. I mean, we've both, you know, been very vocal in the market around this, but, you know, these taxpayers have been in Australia, they've paid their tax, they've paid their dues, um, and we're now turning around instead of acknowledging their contribution to society like every other Australian, we're actually penalising them because they dare choose to go and live abroad. Um, and to me, I, I, it's just a real injustice. I agree And, and it really needs to be changed. I would not mind so much if there was an apportionment or some recognition of the period spent as a resident in Australia. I, I, I think that's fair and equitable. Yeah. You, you know, it really does come back down to that sort of regime. And, and to maybe you get a market value of the day they leave proportionate. I totally have no issue with that. But it's that period they were contributing here that needs to be addressed. If any of our listeners want more information on that, we have a blog article on our website and there is a matrix which maps out the deceased estate impact for both the deceased and the beneficiary and, and depending on their residency status. So Fantastic. I've seen that too, so it's good. It yeah. does help. So, look, final discussion I want to get into a technical sense the control of entities and digital assets. So firstly control, we touched on this earlier. I've got assets in companies and trusts and then I die, of course those assets don't automatically pass to my estate. So who I leave the shares to or the units to in these entities is crucial. Yep. But there's this big misconception about the executor or the LPR automatically becomes the director, the trustee, the appointor. This isn't the case, is it? No, it's not the case. The, you, you could have it in your will that you actually specify that those people step into that role. But that would uh, need to be appointed through the will to do it so. It would need to be appointed through the will, and anybody looking at a will and looking at accepting a role as an executor might want to understand those provisions before they actually accept such an appointment, because you'll obviously you know, come undone to that. The, the estate will, to the extent that shares, receive those shares, so they might have the full voting rights of the company. So it, those shares are a valuable asset to the estate potentially, so they'll want to get those monies back or deal with that company, but it doesn't mean that they need to be appointed as a director. And it might be times where the, the executor has no experience that's relevant to running a company, whether it's an investment company or a trading entity. It might be that you, you're better to bring in a professional, um, a, an insolvency practitioner to, to run an interim administration of the company to run that company through, and particularly if you're going to pass that company on to a, uh, to a beneficiary directly, if that's the intent as opposed to going in there yourself, or if there are a lot of retrospective tax issues, or I spoke earlier about a, a, um, a garbage trip in the middle of a farm, or maybe you don't want to go near that. You, you put somebody in that does have the protection, the bankruptcy provisions around them, um, and the administration provisions to be able to, to deal with those assets. I think when it comes to estate planning, it's something that needs to be considered very carefully. And it's not just a case of where do I leave my assets, it's who do I pass the control of my entities to. Because whoever controls 100%. those entities controls the assets in those entities. Well, let's throw another spin tail on that too. It depends where the location of those people are. Because you could end up with a trust that changes its residency of course. due to control. Um, and that by its very nature could create a whole lot of issues as well. And on the upside, probably some advantages depending on where that's going. Potentially, because if it's, yeah. it's going to non-residents and it's a non-resident trust, you may have uh, income that's no longer taxable in Australia. Correct. Mm, very interesting. Digital assets, whole new space. Massive new space, a lot of technical papers going around the world on this area at the moment, but they're assets. So I might have intellectual property, I might have value in my YouTube account because I've got 500,000 listeners or 500 million listeners or whatever around the world watching what I'm doing. Maybe some Bitcoin. Maybe some Bitcoin. So I could have cryptocurrency, I could have value in my Facebook page. These are sometimes intangible and unquantifiable type assets, but they've still got potentially a lot of business or economic value. And then I've got my personal assets, my photographs and my videos and things that I'm storing in Dropbox and iCloud yeah. and, and all these cloud-based solutions. This is an emerging space. It really is an emerging space and um, it's a space where we'll see more litigation. And I think you'll, you'll find companies at the moment, there are companies actually emerging uh, here in Australia and certainly abroad whereby they'll actually take all your passwords and password protect all your passwords, which will only be released upon your own demise. These sort of features are coming into play now. Um, you'll see estates whereby there are these offshore assets or these digital assets that aren't dealt with through the estate administration and, and they need to be dealt with subsequently. People spend thousands of dollars on music, on, on movies and these sort of things 
um, games. They, they build characters within games that actually have real values attributed to them. But they don't necessarily survive death. Some of them do, some of them don't. So you, you could think you're gifting you know, 20 grand worth of music up online, but literally under your license agreement, it ceases to exist on your device. Correct. And I think it's also interesting to know with people's access to their very social media accounts, some of them have a mechanism to advise that particular platform that a person has died and then they can change the status of it. But that's not the same for all the accounts and it does vary across the platform. Significantly. And some of them are refusing to do, to do anything. Mm. Um, you know, and there's been court cases, particularly in the US, around some of that sort of area. Um, so it's definitely an emerging place and definitely something to really watch. All right, and I think we'll um, pull up stumps there. I feel like I could keep chatting to you all afternoon about this. There is so much to cover, (laughs) and I have enjoyed it. So thank you for your insights. Thank you very much, Robin. Appreciate the invite. Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers... You'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm-hmm.